Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast in our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. Hi, this is Mark Raven from Value Capture. Welcome to Habitual Excellence. We are joined today by Dr. John Toussaint. He is the founder and executive chair of Catalysis. John, how are you? Great, Mark. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Well, of course. Um, so it's great to have you here. And you wanted to hear some of your thoughts and reflections on the phrase habitual excellence. What does that mean to you? That phrase, um, which really was, I think, coined by Mr. O'Neill. When I, when I first heard that phrase many years ago, I didn't really understand what it, what it meant. And I think I've been sort of a student of this idea of habitual excellence, enterprise excellence, organizational excellence, whatever you want to call it. And what it means to me now versus when I first heard it, I think is quite different. I think what it means to me now is that, that we focus our principles, behaviors, and systems on creating an environment that our team members, our, our staff members can thrive in to identify and solve problems every day. And um, I don't think that's really what it meant to me when I first learned of it. I think it was sort of like, yeah, well, excellence. Everybody's, you know, I'm a doctor, you know, I'm, I'm going to be excellent because I'm a doctor. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, whereas what it really means today is, is, is much, much deeper than that, right? It, it, it has to do with, you know, what are those principles that you really believe in? What are the values that you espouse? What are the, um, you know, the actions, right? The behaviors that you're going to, uh, that, 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 that are important to creating this environment. And then what are the systems that, that are used to actually support the people? So, you know, I think as, as an early leader, it was like, oh, yeah, it's about me. And, but no, actually, it's about your people. Hmm. So I think, you know, it, it, there's a depth of sort of multi-layer uh, depth of things that go on when, when I think about this now versus when I first heard about it. Yeah. So I was wondering, you, know, you mentioned Mr. O'Neill. Um, if you could elaborate on, you know, you've got stories about meeting him and, and working with him and, and getting him involved in catalysis. So I was wondering if you could tell some of that story and share how he influenced your thinking and your work. Well, I'd, I'd heard Paul speak um, probably twice before I actually met him. And uh, every time I heard him, I mean, those times I heard him, it was it was just exactly right. I mean, everything that he would say about his experience at Alcoa seemed to me so, um, so, so 
perfect for what we were trying to do in healthcare. And of course, it was his his humility, his focus on the people, you know, the basic deep respect for his employees, those those sorts of things. So when I uh, stepped down as CEO in 2008 and had this crazy idea of trying to create a not-for-profit institute that would help to bring people together around these ideas of habitual excellence, um, Paul was one of the first people that I called. And I said, you know, this is my idea. I think we could create an organization that could help facilitate this community uh, so that we could learn together and improve. And, uh, and he immediately said, well, let's come out, come out and, and let's spend some time together. So I flew out to Pittsburgh uh, in 2008 and uh, we spent, we were supposed to meet for an hour and three hours later, we were still, you know, yakking it up. I mean, uh, he and I were, uh, were very excited about the potential uh, for, you know, building this, this community and, and, and really taking these ideas, uh, th- you know, throughout the industry. And so he agreed to join um, uh, my initial board and uh, along with many very famous other people, uh, there were a lot of folks that were very interested uh, back at that point in trying to really change the healthcare industry for the better. Subsequently to that, you know, a few months later, he came and, and visited um, the organization that I was the CEO of, and uh, and and uh, he was in one of the meeting rooms, and we had this big display of of uh, of all these quality awards that we'd won over the years. And uh, he looks in that display, and he's kind of you know uh, you know look looking at each one of those little crystalline statues, and he turns to me and he goes, John, you know what this means. It simply means you're the cream of the crap. Ouch. And, uh, you know, and I, I mean, it was the, the great thing about Paul was he constantly had these <laughs> these one liners that were just got, you know, cut right to the chase. Yeah. And, um, you know, that really did impact me when when we started talking about, you know, the fact that we shouldn't injure anyone. No one, no staff, no, no, no staff, no patients that benchmarking should just be thrown out and we should constantly go for zero. And I think that was, you know, this idea of habitual excellence was really about how do you get to zero, right? Not 95th percentile performance and all this other stuff. I mean, I actually measured 95th percentile performance in our cardiac work as about 120,000 defects per million. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, that's cream of the crap. Um, so my, my relationship with Paul, you know, over the years was very, uh, 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 you know, endearing and, uh, and he would constantly push me to think about, um, whether it's measuring quality or thinking about staff members or understanding harm. He was always pushing me to, to improve my, my thinking. Yeah. So around this idea of you know really trying to get to zero and establishing theoretical limits, uh, I was wondering if you could you know share some additional thoughts there of you know maybe as, as you talk now with other healthcare leaders about this idea, um, what 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 range of reactions do you get to this idea of really 
really pushing for that theoretical limit of zero harm or 100% success um, with, with something that we do. I think it's few and far between uh, of leaders that, that really are, are trying to get to zero. Uh, I still think we have the medical model uh, is that, you know, people die and uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, I don't know that we've really, I don't know that we've reached, you know, the tipping point necessarily yet. Certainly there, there are some organizations throughout the world that have been, have been embracing this um, and they've achieved great results. So we know that the method um, behind the concept of habitual excellence works um, because we have organizations like the Cleveland Clinic and UMass Memorial and, you know, uh, uh, on and on uh, that, that have been showing, uh, you know, Mount Sinai Morningside have been showing that, that, that when you actually put in place a lean management system and then you live the behaviors, you can get great results. Um, and you can pursue zero. You can get to zero. The a little hospital in Kitchener, Ontario, you know, safest hospital in Canada, three out of six years with uh, the lowest harm rates, uh, both for patients and staff of any hospital in Canada. So, you know, it can happen, but it just takes a lot of effort on the leader's perspective mm -hmm. to keep it the number one priority. So safety has to become the number one priority. And it's not just patient safety. It's staff safety. And in fact, staff safety may actually be more important than patient safety, because if you don't have safe staff, you don't have safe patients. And COVID-19 is a great example of that, where we didn't keep our staff safe. And guess what happened? Our patients got sick and died. So it's, it's um, you know, it really takes the leadership commitment to say safety is number one, not finances, not bank loans, not, you know, Wall Street safety. Yeah. And then we've got thinking, you know, what are, what are the long-term effects beyond, um, you know, people in healthcare who've gotten sick and have unfortunately died? What, what are the long-term effects to organizations? You know, and, you know, I've, I've heard some talk about, you know, probably the, you know, kind of future PTSD of, you know, if people haven't been supported by their organizations, what, what does that mean in terms of their future engagement and, ability to function and at a high level as, as an, as, as an organization, what, what is that going to mean? I guess that's, that's unknown. We'll figure it out. But. Well, I, I do think though, that this is a good thing to step back. I mean, there's a lot of things I think we've learned out of this pandemic. Um, and I think this might be the most important one, which is we, we have not kept our staff safe. We know this is the, the industry that has the most has the most staff injuries of any industry in the world. The pandemic simply, you know, uh, blows that up and just shows how unbelievably unsafe this industry is, mm -hmm. and the ramifications of that now long term for the workers that have had to, you know, put, go through this and are still going through it and may go through other surges along the way. Um, so I think this really does sort of highlight, I mean, everything Paul O'Neill stood for. It's like, 
We didn't keep our staff safe and look what happened. Now is the time to say staff safety comes number one. I think this is a great point to pivot and say, you know, there's some serious flaws in the way we do work. Right. And, and this pandemic has, has outlined them beautifully for us. So don't let a good, great crisis go to waste. Let's fix the staff safety problems in our hospitals. Yeah, I'm sure you remember, um, you know, I was in the audience listening to him as well when Mr. O'Neill came and gave a keynote talk at the 2013 Lean Healthcare Transformation Summit. And I remember, you know, he challenged, well, you know, he asked leaders, you know, raise your hand if your organization posts your lost workday rates on your website. And I'm sure no hands went up. And, you know, he challenged leaders to, to do that and, and have that focus and have transparency and, and go to work um, on that. But, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, in, in this era, if, if, you know, like if somebody cuts their finger or strains their back, that's clearly a workplace injury. Like it, I wonder if it's, you know, is it counted as a lost workday quote unquote injury if somebody gets COVID-19 in the course of providing care? That's, that's harder to know. It's harder to prove, but it's happening, right? Well, it's happened a lot. Yeah. And I mean, it seems to me that that would be one of the top quote unquote injuries that we would be looking for, you know, um, in this, in this pandemic. But unfortunately, uh, you know, you hear the stories of the, the doctors being fired that are, you know, that are uh, pointing out that we have, that, that, that they don't have PPE. And, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, the, the story I love the best about, I mean, I, there's so many stories, but the, the, the one I, I always um, enjoyed was when, you know, he got up in front of his staff when he got to be the CEO and he said, now, and it, it, this was a frontline worker meeting. This wasn't a bunch of managers. Frontline worker meeting. And he, and he wrote his phone number up on the blackboard and he said, if there's ever a time when, you know, when there's uh, something dangerous at work, I want you to call me personally. Yeah. And sure enough, you know, a few weeks later, it's guy, you know, on the 11 o'clock shift at one of the Tennessee plants calls him and says, you know, there's this big conveyor belt that's been broken for, you know, weeks and we have to pick this, you know, this huge heavy uh, vat up and move it. And I'm sure that, you know, somebody's going to get injured because it takes six or seven of us to do that. Well, you know, boom, phone, phone goes down, picks it right back up. Paul calls the manager of that plant and says, I want you down there working on that thing until it's fixed and don't leave until it's fixed and call me as soon as it's fixed. Right. So guys there all night, they work on the, whatever it was, the conveyor belt or whatever it was. And, and, you know, by 7am the next morning, it's fixed. Yeah. So as Paul tells, told the story, it was like, okay, that the Tom Tom communication system now was going on throughout Alcoa that like the CEO actually cares about us, you know, that this thing got fixed and it hadn't been fixed for weeks. And so, you know, that's the kind of behavior, the actionable behavior yeah. that we need, that we're looking for in healthcare leaders. And we're not seeing as much of it as we need, especially during this crisis. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and, and as you point out there, I mean, the action behind the words is, is key because zero harm could easily become just a slogan. But it, when you have a method and you have the leadership behaviors that, that help make that a reality, um, as, as Mr. O'Neill demonstrated that, that really seems the key, be the key, not just give a lip service, but really stand behind what you're saying about safety. Right. And I mean, you, you've got to have a system in place, right? So they're clearly what he was establishing was a very clear management system where problems were being escalated, you know, where the 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 the, the focus was on staff injuries uh, and and other right improvement activities, but without a without a a management system. Now he didn't call it lean management, but you know it was his excellence management system. Um, you know he couldn't he couldn't uh, manage all these things himself. He had to build that system. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of healthcare organizations today is they don't have a management system that is really um, focused on frontline, you know, ideas uh, and, and, and activities. It's all just sort of one way. It comes from the CEO, boom, you go do this, go do this, go do this. And so the, the ability to get the creativity of the people that do the work involved in, in, you know, in, in, in solving these problems, which is what was so impressive about what they did at Morningside on Sinai Morningside, where they had, you know, hundreds of staff ideas that were constantly being uh, used to figure out, okay, how, you know, how do we surge these to ICU rooms? What do we, you know, how do we manage this, uh, this ED flow problem? You know, I mean, those are the kinds of uh, systems that we direly need throughout the industry. And fortunately, we have some pretty good examples of places that are, you know, capable of doing, you know, what Paul had created at, uh, at Al- Alcoa. We just need a whole lot more of them throughout the industry. Yeah. So maybe the final question is, as you continue your work to try to help inspire this type of leadership and create more leaders like this. What, what are some other, uh, other than what you've mentioned so far, other key lessons and takeaways for leaders going forward here? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Paul really clearly outlined that his number one principle, I mean, it was manifested by the focus on safety but clearly the principle in play there was respect for every person, right? So I respect you enough to have you solve the problems, right? I don't have to solve the problems, you, you solve the problems. And we're gonna make sure we have systems in place to do that. That means we're gonna create an environment in which your ideas are, uh, you know, in, not only encouraged, but um, celebrated. And we're going to make sure that that um, that environment is consistent for you every day, and that leaders' jobs are really to make sure that you can focus on creating value for that customer, in this case, the patient, uh, every day. So we've got to get off the high horse, and we've got to get to where the work's being done, and we've got to understand. You know, what are the barriers and the problems that are that are being faced by those people? And then everything that we do 
should be based on that information. Uh, every strategy, every priority, every, you know, every resource uh, allocation should be based on what we're seeing at the front line, at the Gimba, uh, to, to, to improve the ability and the environment for those people to, to do work that gives their life meaning. And that's exactly the way Paul said it. Yeah. And I and I think that if if as leaders we we walk we get we get to work whether it's virtually or any other way and we keep that one thing in mind, you know, how do I create the environment that's going to help my workers, my team, you know, do work that gives their life meaning? To me, that sums it all up right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. Um, we'll we'll leave it um, on that note. But um, our, our guest again, um, want to thank uh, Dr. John Toussaint, founder and executive chair of Catalysis. You can learn more about their work and visit their website at www.createvalue.org. Um, John, thank you so much for sharing some of your thoughts and lessons and reflections here with us today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm happy to to remember Paul in such. Uh, powerful stories. Yeah. Thanks again for those. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.